0: Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this week's episode of the Spiked podcast, I just wanted to remind everyone about Spiked supporters. Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives five pounds or more a month or 50 pounds or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and you can get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. Plus, you can get free or discounted access to all of our events. It was brilliant to see so many Spike supporters at our recent live podcast with Brendan O'Neill and Julia Hartley Brewer, and we have plenty of exciting events in store for you. Spike supporters is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure anyone anywhere can read us. And for that, we're truly grateful. And if you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me, as ever, we have Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, David Amos, Plan B for Winter, COP26, and Dave Chappelle. So, the MP David Amos was killed uh, about a week ago. A man has been charged with murder and with preparing terrorist acts. Now, obviously, a lot of politicians are understandably very shaken by this. But there has been a bit of a, a bit of a disconnect between the act itself and what has kind of captured the political class, I think it's fair to say, Tom.
1: No, I think it's been slightly surreal, to be perfectly honest with you. Because if you look at the past week, what have we spent most of our time talking about? We've been talking about the abuse that MPs receive, we've been talking about online anonymity, it's been generalized. This crime, as if it's just a sort of symptom of a general hatred in society, a general anger in society, uh, taking down particular rabbit holes which seem to have no bearing whatsoever on this particular alleged terrorist murder. Mm. Um, you felt like you were going crazy at certain points in the week, I think it's fair to say. you. I don't mean to sound flippant, but you felt the need to have to point out, as we did many times on Spike this week, that David Amos was not the victim of a particularly nasty Twitter storm. He was the victim of a suspected terrorist attack, which as we found out in the past couple of hours is being treated as terrorist with ideological and religious motivations. So to put that in the same bucket as people getting abuse online in general just makes absolutely no sense. I can understand why MPs would think about their own safety in general Mm. at a time like this, but at the same time, that's the only thing that we've talked about. We've talked endlessly about online anonymity as if that had any bearing on this whatsoever. And I hate to say it, but this just fits the pattern that we always get, which is that in the wake of a terrorist attack, whether we're talking about in the wake of an Islamist terrorist attack, really, let's be be serious about this, the instant impulse is to deflect. Mm. Either you find yourself in a conversation about, we can't get too angry about this because that could have adverse consequences for the Muslim community, etc., Or in this case, you see something entirely different, which is just to try to move the conversation onto something entirely different, something that people might find unpleasant, but has no bearing on this whatsoever. And it's been so striking how that narrative has kind of triumphed over the facts of the case itself. What you read about in the news stories, things coming out over the course of the week about this individual having contact with the Prevent Scheme, potentially being a fanboy of Anjum Chowdhury. You read about these things in the news pages, but when you get to the comment pages or you hear what's going on in Parliament, an entirely parallel conversation is going on. And I think it just shows the, the sort of unseriousness, if nothing else, of this particular discussion, that instantly the attempt is to deflect attention somewhere else. And it's almost people do this unthinkingly now. Yeah, That's probably almost the most unsettling part of all of this this week, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ella, what have you made of the sort of territory that it's been brought onto? Online anonymity, abuse online. I mean, there's talk about beefing up the the government's planned online safety bill in mm-hmm. response to this i mean it is you know it's it's surreal but what do you what do you make of it
2: well there are lots of people on social media who say who are kind of saying things like don't want to sound conspiratorial but isn't it relatively convenient that the government seems to be using and abusing the killing of david Amos to bolster its plans to crack down on uh, social media giants to say we need to do more about harm online and it's all kind of a bit politically convenient. But, I mean, the point that Tom makes about the fact that there's this deflection, there's the deflection that no one wants to talk about, the fact that this was an Islamist terrorist attack, supposedly, or allegedly, but there's also the fact that it's it's not even just deflecting to not talk about Islamist terror. It's also the suggestion that the, the threat that MPs face is not from even lone wolves or madmen or terrorists, but from the general public, yeah so they've you had you know the day after the uh killing you had m p s coming on to talk about how they had felt nervous in their um surgeries, some of them suggesting that they might use plastic face shields, i mean not to sound flippant, but as if that would prevent. A, a knife attack, a plastic facials, ridiculous. Um, but also just suggesting that things are a little bit hairy out there, and it really reminded me of discussions that we had post Brexit, which mm. was about the way in which politicians felt very nervous about engaging with mm. their publics. You know, we everyone kind of knows that MPs don't particularly like surgeries. In fact, that's why David Amos has been singled out as this quite unique individual, and in that he. You know, lived and breathed as as the stories are uh, telling uh, of him, the uh, interaction with the public. He was a unique politician that he actually enjoyed his surgeries. Lots of them sort of uh, wince when they have to do it, but this now is being used as an excuse to put another barrier in the process of democratic interaction with your constituents in a really cheap way, and most tragically, in a way that you know, someone like David Amos. Fought back against Mm. Uh, after the murder of Joe Cox. He was one of the politicians who came out saying, I'm still going to have um, my surgeries. I'm still going to go out into public. I don't, and, you know, and indeed during the pandemic. He made some speeches in um, the House of Commons talking about the need to have face to face interaction, about the importance of being accessible as a politician, even with the risks that that involves. And obviously he felt he was a victim, not to the risks of going out into the fray of the public, but to a very specific attack that, that happens in a very specific political context. It's a difficult argument to make at the moment, but I have to say there's a fair amount of cowardice going on. Uh, within our political representatives who want to try and, I think, use this to prevent and hide from what should be proper democratic processes. And that is a real damnation to the legacy of someone like David Amos.
0: Yeah, Tom, what do you make of that? Are politicians sort of walling themselves off from the from the public?
1: I mean, it's a, it certainly feels as if the response has changed a lot. I mean, if you think back to 2010, which I think was when Stephen Timms, mm. the Labour MP for East Ham, was um, stabbed by... Uh, Islamist extremist in that case as well. Um, He actually made a point of saying they offered him like a knife arch um, for his surgeries and he refused that insofar as he was saying, I don't want people to think I'm suspicious of them. Mm. I don't want people, I don't want any more barriers to be created because even something as simple as putting, say, a policeman on the door has consequences. What if the people who are coming to see you have very legitimate reasons to come and see you, have bad experiences with the police or have reasons to be nervous. All of these things can create unnecessary barriers but as well as just kind of Getting in the way of the sense that these people are supposed to be part of your community, one of you, your representative, not someone who's in any way kind of sheltered away from you, it can be really destructive. But I think it really comes down to that point that you're making about this idea, this really slippery idea that's been around for quite a while, but it's got Mm -hmm. very intense in recent years that there's this kind of atmosphere, that there's this sort of culture, that there's this vibe which exists, um, which has been ginned up by media discussions about Brexit or the culture war or this or that or what. Pick your issue because it's so subjective. You can hang anything you don't like on it, really. And the symptomatic of that are all of these different, very, you know, different kinds of issues that we're dealing with in society. I mean, it's like the thing is that, you know, there are murders for all different kinds of reasons all the time. There's obviously different motivations, different contexts in which we need to see this. And I think I would have potentially more time for the different kind of arguments and discussions that have gone on this week, if they weren't the only ones that were going on. we talked exclusively about anonymity. We're not even really talking about MPs' security at constituency surgeries anymore. That was kind of in the first wave of this. But since then, it's just become increasingly different. And, and I think you, you do have know. to contrast it, though, as well. Just on the talk of Joe Cox point, I think it's important, yeah. because there was this editorial in The Observer this week, or last week, I should say, which said that people will jump on the scant details that this is being treated as a terrorist incident with a potential Islamist motivation. Imagine if in the wake of Joe Cox's killing, someone had said that the fact that the far-right extremist who murdered her in cold blood shouted Britain first as he did so, that it very quickly became established that he mm. had a net history full of far-right websites and all the rest of it. Imagine if anyone said, oh, we shouldn't focus too much on that. Yeah, You would rightly be very seriously criticised. And yet in this situation, just cowardice pervades completely. And yet it's cowardice about the form of terrorism, which is by far the more deadly form that we have to deal with today mm. and that all just comes down to cowardice definitely
0: but also doesn't that kind of play into the contempt of the public you know the fact is we we can't we supposedly can't have a discussion about islamism because we people will Go out and you know commit crimes against Muslim against innocent Muslims that seems to be one of the uh, you know driving forces so again there is, is this cowardice and contempt you know combining together to to wall us off from our representatives and to wall us off from free speech and proper democratic discussion
2: yeah i mean the, this has been used not just in relation to anonymity but there's also been. Uh, calls to regulate the press in the wake of the killing of David Amos. I mean, people have been sharing the front pages, the enemies of the people front page that got everyone's knickers in a twist way back when. But also sharing this front page from the Telegraph that had something like the the Brexit denials or something in a list mm. of MPs that had voted against a oh, particular yeah the mutineers, yeah, the mutineers was, and yeah. and mm. and it was you know people brought up the Jess Phillips you know line uh, stabbing you in the front in relation to Corbyn. And it, you know, suddenly the discussion is you cannot use certain kinds of language to talk about in politics or you risk some madman going out and killing someone, you know, which completely negates the fact that this was not some random madman going out and killing someone, but it was a very, it's a, it looks like as we haven't got all the details, but the uh, person who allegedly killed David Amos looks like it was a almost cookie cutter, um, Example of things that we've seen before of an individual radicalized um, along with Islamist terror, born in the UK, brought up in the UK, and and we're still not able to have that discussion. And yeah. the tragedy is that how many times does this have to happen before we get serious about calling out the problem and talking about it out in the open? The more we express a kind of cowardice around Islamist terror, which is a point that we've made on Spike many times before. The more these people seem to proliferate, and the more the problem goes unsolved, you know, we've had in the last week discussions about, oh, what, what are we going to do about prevent on campus? But these people aren't at university, you know, holding discussions with preachers. It's going on in this kind of underground radicalised area that is going to continue to provide people with warped views. At, you know, what is it that makes someone get on a, allegedly get on a train and kill a uh, politician? You know, seemingly at random. We have to talk about that or risk it continuing to happen. Tom, anything you want to add to this?
1: Well, I think it's just coming back to that question of the consequences for freedom of speech as a a result of this is really important to stress because it feels like this discussion, as with so many discussions we have nowadays, it just seems to be another symptom of the fact that the political class and the media really think that basically words are dangerous, Mm. is one really, and that people can't be trusted. And if you believe those two things, and censorship is a logical consequence of that. So we've been talking a lot about online anonymity, as if it's it's no small thing to end online anonymity, given the fact that, you know, we're not even necessarily talking here about dissidents in far-flung autocracies who need anonymity to express their views without fear of retribution. It's it's people who hold pretty mainstream views on gender and sex and all different things that we're often talk about on this podcast, let alone the fact that, you know, you've got politicians who spend a lot of time railing against the tech oligarchs, but now seemingly want them to hold even more data about us. It's a slightly strange situation to come to, but also more broadly, the online safety bill, mm. as, as you've been saying, which would basically submit online speech to Ofcom regulation. I mean, it's uh, it would be some of the most drastic um, restrictions on our ability to express ourselves in general, let alone just on the online space that we've really ever seen. And it's just until you tackle that core point, which is that speech is the problem, that people are the problem, rather than distinct people in society, distinct threats, distinct movements, until we dislodge that and have the conversation that we need to have, it's only going to end in a liberal consequence.
0: Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter, it's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually myself. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. So there are calls for the government to implement its plan B for winter as uh, cases are rising, COVID cases are rising as we as we go into the autumn and winter. Um, that would entail vaccine passports, mandatory masks and possibly more homeworking. Um, I mean, what do we make of this? I mean, is it, you know, Groundhog Day again?
2: Well, you just get that sinking feeling when it was announced that there was the uh, that. Uh, Sajid Jav was going to have a press conference and <laughs> is that brings back all those really <laughs> depressing numbers. moments. We thought, oh mm. God, what next? And despite the fact that the government is for now maintaining some kind of s- semi-sturdy line on on saying, no, we're not going to bring any restrictions in there for now, um, you know, being fairly firm with some of the more catastrophic calls from you know, either newspaper commentators mm-hmm. or um, various quote-unquote experts suggesting that we need to almost bring back in lockdown in the next few weeks to stop the NHS being overwhelmed. There was a real tone in um, what Javid was saying, which basically was, a, I've, I read it as a warning, which was that we're not doing any of this now, but we reserve the right to do it later. And, you know, if you look at some of the details of what he was suggesting, saying, no, we're not going to bring in mandatory mask wearing yet. But I think that, you know, what's going on on TFL and in London is fantastic. You know, as in basically saying you, mandatory mask wearing is a really good thing, but we're not going to have the guts to come out and say that we're in favour of it yet. And it's the it's ho- holding the sword of Damocles over the public yet again. I mean, they there's no... Conception of the fact that it is almost as corrosive to public health to maintain this level of threat to changes of our lives as it is to actually bring them in. I mean, so many of us over the course of the last 18 months were talking about the fact that it was the uncertainty and the waiting to find out what your life was going to look like in two weeks and two Hmm. months time. That was also as much of a problem as being told that you weren't allowed to go outside. And this is going to be horrendous news for so many people. I mean, my 30th is in December. and I tell you, if I have to do a Zoom party, I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) And there's lots of people who have more serious objections to this. I mean, we seem to have forgotten. It makes you want to scream, actually. You seem to have forgotten the fact that You know, just a few weeks ago, that we were talking about the government's lessons learned campaign, talking about all the people that died of dementia in care homes, talking about all the people that didn't manage to get their hips replaced or their cancer treated. Like, that's all gone out the window now because someone has said, ooh, winter's coming. And yes, we have to talk about things like, and be serious about the prospect of a slight rise in hospitalizations, rise in cases, but where where are all the other options? You know, options like, you know, things that are now controversial, shielding, options like looking at where, you know, vaccine boosters might be relevant, rather than relying on this really kind of lazy, coercive response, which Mm. just says, oh, uh, you know, what are we going to do? Panic, shut everything down.
1: But I mean, aside from the the lockdown freaks who just, are terrified of society being reopened again at all. The obvious answer to this is the fact that the booster vaccination program is going far too slowly. It's yeah. not like two thirds of care home residents haven't got their third jab yet. These are the most vulnerable people in society. There's concerns about the first doses already having waned. Um, you know, uh, Full clip during the first vaccination programmes, like we were hitting about 600,000 a day, we're at about 200,000 a day. Yeah. At the moment, it's quite clear where the problem is. Mm. And when you hear, um, whether it's the NHS Confederation or the British Medical Association have come out and suggested that we need to go to Plan B+, plus, I think was some of their language. <laughs> what they're not letting on here is this isn't a question of covid cases yep. overwhelming the nhs this is a question of a combination of covid uh, concerns about flu of course and also the backlog yeah so it's a completely different situation and i was trying to suggest that the nhs isn't squeezed and that a lot of them are burnt out and all of the rest of it but what are we going to get into a situation just whenever the nhs comes in under any kind of pressure as it does every winter basically that therefore again we have to protect the nhs rather than the other way around it's a really strange state of affairs and also I think it might end up changing the discussion a little bit about it. If this is really the road that the debate is going to go down, I think people are going to start asking much more searching questions about why, in this instance or any other, it seems like the NHS can't walk and chew gum at the same time on all these different issues. I think whilst the goodwill towards the health service, which is, is significant, especially towards the people who work in it rather than as some sort of abstract institution, um, whether or not setting this as, you know, your freedoms basically have to go out the window because of the fact that, the NHS is under strain. Yeah, I think that's going to change the conversation a little bit, potentially. But there's just, again, you just wonder at what point can they confidently say, there's things that we can do to stop this. The vaccine is the number one thing. Everything else we just have to deal with. Yeah, Um, Whether that's more NHS capacity or more capacity for the booster programme, whatever it is. But again, we're trapped in this. And also there's still, remarkably, a lot of kind of political energy Engaged in just kind of scoring lame points off the Tories because of their reticence to strip people of their freedoms again <laughs> you know that's a big part of this definitely
0: yeah and 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 I suppose it isn't the big part of it as well that you know this is the first sort of post vaccine winter um you know if we have restrictions this winter, then surely it's that's going to be the story for every winter from now on right if we don't get through this winter without it. Yeah, We're in in trouble in the long term.
2: This is the moment where you need a government with some balls that's able to say, okay, we are confident in what we've done in relation to the vaccine programme. And as Tom says, we're going to like booster it more and get it to the right people in the right places. But the implementation of lockdown or mask wearing and stuff like that is a failure. I think we've forgotten that. It's like that is a failure of process. Even way back in the beginning of this pandemic, I mean, lockdown was always described as a means of, as a kind of, a stemming of all. a problem. Yeah. yeah, it was. It wasn't like this is the cure. It's the even the you know the the phrase protecting the NHS. That's a that means something's going wrong, and we've, yeah. that's that's been lost from this discussion. The fact that this is not a positive, like the vaccine is. This is not a positive implementation. This is the admission that you are doing something wrong. And, you know, I have to say, I'm going to sound like authoritarian now, and obviously I completely believe in press freedom and all of that. But the, but, sex- no. but the <laughs> section of the press conferences where, you know, uh, newspaper editors and commentators come in and are now essentially actively pushing for, mm. you know, lockdown restrictions or lockdown-like restrictions. Mm. You know, one um, person who asked a question, who should remain nameless, uh, said, you know, basically saying to Sajid Javid, it's terrible that one of your um, MPs was talking about having a Christmas party. How dare he? And, you know, people aren't wearing enough masks in the House of Commons. And Sajid Javid comes back and says, oh, you've got a point, yes. And you just want to rip your hair out because you think it's at a point when the press is very out of step with the rest of the public. Yes, people are still taking this seriously, but there is no desire yeah. for the kind of thing the scenes that we have been through in the last 18 months. No humane person would want to put people through that again. And yet there's this flippant way of just mm-hmm. talking about this as if it's just a case of, oh, you know, it was just like last Christmas when you had to open the windows and wear a jumper. It's a complete madness, uh, you know, playing down of, The seriousness of what we've been through in the last year and a half. And
0: and just quickly, Tom, I mean, there's the question of how we implement all this, how this goes through. The Coronavirus Act has been extended for another six months without even needing a vote in the House Mm. of Commons. The plan B for winter will go through, you know, either via the Coronavirus Act or via the Public Health Act, but there won't need to be a vote on it in Parliament. I mean, that's a big problem, isn't it?
1: Well, that's that's the other thing that's going on under the surface, which again, the press seem to have no interest in whatsoever, is the um, nature of these restrictions, the civil liberties points, as you were saying, how even now none of them feel moved to say, are you really going to do this again? What about all of the co- consequences of that, etc., cetera, et cetera. The fact that it's, the question is always in one direction, yeah. I think is, or, has been fascinating. But as you say, it's also not only the nature of these restrictions, but how in which they're implemented. Um, the Winter Plan envisages using, again, these reserved powers for ministers to be able to just make law, um, so that they can do so at speed. And the lack of even just sort of public media discussion about the fact that on COVID, the government was ruling by decree, I just don't care about it whatsoever. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Is it the only thing that should, people should be talking about in the midst of a pandemic? Of course not. But it's a pretty significant thing, do yeah. you think? And yet these things just go through without anyone almost noticing. The
0: Spiked Shop is open for business You can get your favourite spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, mug or more. So why not treat yourself or treat a friend who has good taste to some epic spiked merchandise? Get ban nothing, question everything on a sweatshirt. Get cancel cancel culture on a laptop sleeve. Or get love Europe, hate the EU on a tote bag. Support Spiked and look great at the same time by visiting the Spiked shop. You can go to spikes-online.com and click the red shop button in the top right corner, or you can get there directly by going to spikes-online.com forward slash shop. So, Boris Johnson has announced uh, the UK's plans to get to net zero. They complement a lot of the other plans that have been announced over the years, of course. Um, but this comes in advance, two weeks in advance, of COP26. I mean, we have we have heard a lot of this before, you know, gas boilers replaced with heat pumps, more electric cars, more hydrogen fuel, that kind of thing. But is there anything that's sort of stuck out to you, Ella, or anything about the nature of this kind of strange politics?
2: Well, I- I mean, it's sort of uncontroversial to say that this, the COP26 is the flagship event for Boris Johnson to prove his, um, you know, his conversion away from what used to be a kind of uh, you know, um, (laughs) semi-libertarian, you know, semi-ballsy politician or at least pretended to be who didn't care necessarily about um, what was politically trendy. And to this, you know, this new man who, as we've said many times on this podcast, has certain um, campaigners and lobbyists in his ear who are obsessed with green politics, who's all for as you pointed out in your column this week, Fraser, uh, basically instituting austerity mm. um, to the British public, talking about openly talking about the need to do and consume less. Um, to they don't use words like belt tightening, but in the policies that they're announcing, um, it's very clear that people are going to have to get used to the idea that they would drive less, that they would eat less meat. This is all yeah. being turned from you know a impoverishment into a virtue you know it will make your life better if you have less food and less options and somehow we're meant to swallow this and one of the you know really insightful um, examples of this was the announcement of the five grand uh, grant for for heat pumps, yeah. which was announced as this oh, look how generous we are giving you five grand and something that you know definitely costs more than five grand. But there was a it was a really good example of the short sightedness of these policies because anyone who knows anything about homes uh, and about heating and about the way in which, as you've pointed out many times, Fraser, these pumps work. 5 grand towards it okay it might get you some of the way there but it's going to cost you 10 15 20 grand to insulate your crappy home to be able to make this thing work mm. and so it's, and then they've not only this but they've also brought in um the suggestion that there's going to be bans on new gas boilers from uh, you know I think it's 2035 or something so basically that's saying like the ULES in London and many other of these policies get on board or suffer yeah. and and you know what the what are we meant to do with that? What is our mean democratic means of challenging this? I'm not going to get to go to COP26. Are you going to get to go to COP26? How are any of us are meant to you know raise any criticism about this? It feels incredibly authoritarian and really undemocratic.
0: Tom, I mean, what have you made of kind of Boris's relation to the, this in particular? Because he does, you know, a he's. You know, going full guns blazing for mm. net zero, but on the other hand, he will say things like, you know, there's not a hair shirt in sight and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. He'll make fun of insulate Britain. I think he he said something along the lines of, you know, the boiler Gestapo are not going to break break in your house and wearing, sandals, so he, and yeah, wearing sandals, yeah, wearing sandals, yeah. I mean what do you make of that strange tension
1: I think it's a recognition that this is an unpopular agenda you know <laughs> and it's or it's associated with um, that kind of level of like eco extremism and sort of middle class moralism and again this kind of sense that we have to almost um it's like a kind of penitence or something that we now have to rein things in and rein in our lifestyles because of the horrendous impact we've had on the planet. But I think it shows a level of defensiveness. I mean, mm. that's the main thing. I mean, the, the other thing about the way in which he's been talking this past week has been really interesting is he's quite openly talking about the fact that this is like a gamble yeah. in terms of a lot of these policies. Because really, we all know the technology isn't there. Um, the kind of production for things like heat pumps or whatever isn't necessarily there. So the aim is that the government intervenes and it subsidizes and it dishes out loans here or there. Um, and the hope is that the private sector will kind of come through and therefore the costs of uh, heat pumps will go down. Or yeah. again, these technologies will finally come through, you know, carbon capture and storage, which you need, as far as I understand it, to do hydrogen power and all the rest yeah. of it.
0: And every, every single scenario envisaged by the Climate Change Committee features carbon mm. capture and storage
1: very heavily. So if it doesn't work, it's exactly. over. And it's not been done yeah. on this scale. So it's, all of this stuff is just complete wing and a prayer mm. um and the problem about this discussion is because it's informed by that kind of broader apocalypticism of like well it might not work but then otherwise we'll die <laughs> yeah. it just becomes yeah. this kind of really deadening you know what option do you have yeah. it becomes this really deadening discussion and i think the point about the the sort of democratic deficit of it is really important because net zero was committed to in the theresa may days after what 90 minutes of debate it's not actually it's generous to call it debate yeah <laughs> back um It was just, you know, this was nothing that was ever really submitted to proper levels of public discussion, democratic scrutiny. Um, There's not actually been any cost attached to net zero in the latest publication, but at the same time where it has been measured, it's been what north of a trillion at least. I mean, this, this is a fundamental change of how society and infrastructure and how our lives operate and all the rest of it. But it's just kind of sliding through. And the only pushback you get from, say, the Labour Party is you're not doing it fast enough. Yeah, Quickly, quickly. I mean, it's really quite strange if you think about the totality of this policy. And then also the fact, we're talking about, you know, a lot of these discussions being detached from reality in the midst of a gas crisis, cost of living crisis, yeah. talking about people having to shell out on a heat pump or pay more for their energy. I mean, all of this stuff, it just makes no sense. But it comes back to that point, which we've, we've talked about it a fair bit on the podcast, which is just, All of this green politics, it just inverts the usual expectations of politics on its head. You know, people's lives are supposed to get better as a consequence of this. They're competing to impoverish us Mm. and become world leaders in impoverishing people. I hope that only in the end, you know, just the normal logic of politics wins out because there will be some sort of significant backlash however form it takes but they're not getting it at the moment the,
0: the, the danger is that some, something's got to give and you know the backlash comes you know kind of from an unexpected place and because people have been squeezed too hard unfortunately yeah. and we obviously don't want that to happen
2: there's also this, this distortion that the other side to this is everyone gets on board with this because no one wants to kill the planet or like i remember listening to the radio the other day and um the one of these science climate scientists that get you know rolled out on these programs was asked, "Well, what about the fact that this is going to make working class people's lives worse? You know it's going things are going to cost more, and they're not going to be able to afford to have the electric car that you swan around in, so they'll just have to walk. And her response was, well, it's, you know, well, if we don't do anything, we are mm. all going to die or we are all going to come impoverished. And you think, A, no and not, because it's not, <laughs> uh, by your own admission, it's not you that gets to go first if the planet starts trying to kill us. But there's, there's, I mean, I think the point that Tom makes about the democratic deficit is so important and not to sound bitter, but you remember after Brexit, Um, there were so many people saying, how could we possibly have known what we were voting for? No one knew the consequences, despite the fact that, as we pointed out, I had vast amount of public discussion about this. There was a real, you know... The whole establishment agreed that it was impossible for anyone to know the consequences of the detail of how Brexit was going to change our lives. And no one, no one is talking about the detail of how these policies are going to change our lives. You know, the fact that, for example, old people will not be able to heat their homes or that, you know, even... Semi-frivolous things like young people who live in far flung places in out in the sticks where you need to have a car Mm. to get around and have a life and have a job and meet friends and all that kind of stuff aren't going to be able to do that in the future. None of this stuff is being discussed. And you end up, that's I think what drives people away from a sensible discussion about the environment you know, the fact that the government is now pushing us onto everything being related to electricity and has no credible plans to build any more power stations, the fact that the nuclear energies we've said many times in this podcast has become like, you know...
1: They've just realised it exists. Yeah, yeah, but also it's like, it's like talking
2: about it as like saying Voldemort. It's like you're not allowed to say it. but it's like it's, And people say, oh... You know, nuclear waste and stuff. There's a really infantile discussion around this, which paints all of us and anyone who are, asks a sensible question about why we are being impoverished as climate deniers or evil, you know, gas-guzzling bastards, yeah. basically. And unless that <laughs> changes, we're going to sleep much like the covered stuff. We're going to sleepwalk into a position where our lives are being changed without us having any means to push back on it.
0: And finally, let's talk a bit about um, Dave Chappelle. His comedy special has sparked a walkout at Netflix Mm. and that's been backed by numerous Netflix stars. Uh, Dave Chappelle, for not the first time, has been accused of transphobic hate speech, essentially. Tom, what have you made of these protests?
1: Very curious, I think. I mean, <laughs> the, you see the wave of these in kind of Silicon Valley, um these kind of big tech firms, mm-hmm. or even in the publishing world. We talked about some of them, where you basically have kind of staff walkouts and almost strike action, but over their own hurt feelings. Yeah, like it's not about pay, it's not about working conditions. It's about how dare you have published this thing that has upset me. I mean, it's the most <laughs> what well, they would say it is
0: about conditions because you've made
1: an unsafe work environment. Well, this is the thing because I watched <laughs> some of the videos from the uh <laughs> protest earlier today. I, it, you know, anyone should. It's quite comical um, but they're quite openly saying I mean I, I'm not it's not 100% clear if these people actually work there or if these are people who just sort of well wishes I think um, you know yeah, hang on. hangers on um, people in the sort of activist set and all the rest of it but there was one of the speeches from one of the organizers said we're not here because we can't take a joke we're here because these jokes are taking lives <laughs> And you just think, first of all, that means you can't take a joke, doesn't it? But also, <laughs> it just shows that there's this kind of, this is a sort of hysteria. Mm. I mean, it's a mania. This The controversy over Dave Chappelle and his various, very brilliant comedy specials that he's um, had out on Netflix over the course of the past couple of years, uh, the level of outrage that sustained has been incredible. And you have to remind yourself that what you're talking about here are jokes. I mean, at the beginning of this special, the closer he makes a joke about being abused as a child and enjoying it. Yeah, This man, like, is a provocateur. He's, he's having a laugh. Like, you know, the idea that this is something akin to a sort of yeah. hateful, transphobic rally is completely ridiculous. And what you're really just seeing is that this idea that, again, kind of like words of violence, that speech is violence, that a lot of some of the people who have quite significant positions in culture and in these organisations now hold to, it's just completely incompatible with artistic freedom. The the two cannot exist. And these protesters, as far as I understand it, they're at pains to say, we're not saying that the special should have been pulled down. But effectively what they're saying is we want to make sure this never happens again. Um, They want to um, bring through almost like kind of trans sensitivity viewers um, to make sure that if there's anything which touches on these topics, they're consulted. I mean, it's basically about, closing off any anyone th- who might dare want to touch upon these topics in a way that a self-appointed activist set have decided are off, off limits. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's all very strange and very ridiculous, but at the same time, it's the fact that Netflix, interestingly, is starting to cave into it mm-hmm. after uh, originally putting up a bit more of a quite robust front, I think, tells you where things are going in that respect.
0: <clears throat> what do you make of the, just the scale of the controversy? I mean, it's, it's some people have pointed out on Twitter that it's been in the news for longer than the Afghanistan withdrawal yeah. and, you know, various mm. other serious issues.
2: But also, issues. it's gone on for more than one of his programmes. I mean, the whole point about <laughs> yeah. this, the, his closer, this most recent one that's come out, was that it was addressing the fact that he's had to address this issue again and again and again. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you know, I, I'm a great fan of Dave Spire. In fact, actually, I think you told me about him, Tom, and, and since you've told me about him, I've gone to all of his shows and watched as many as I can and watched him. And you you know that he's he actually kind of has told less jokes in this most recent mm. one has spent more time politically opining about how he is not a transphobe and you know making he he's very clear about the fact that he doesn't think that people shouldn't have rights and stuff like that but that how he's pissed off at being told that he can And cannot say certain things. This a really infantile way of looking at comedy as well. Because I remember when I went to see him in, I think it was Camden a number of years ago. It was before the whole trans stuff. And I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure myself and my partner were the only white people in the crowd. And all his jokes were about white people and how awful they were and all this kind of stuff. And, you know... When you got past the uncomfortableness of the fact that he was actually pointing at us a lot of the time and everyone else was <laughs> laughing at us, it was hilarious It because you enter into a comedy gig when you watch something like that, understanding that you're going to laugh at people and also you might be laughed at yourself and that's part of the shock factor. It's part of the pushing the boundaries of comedy and no one seems to be talking about the thin skinness of the of these small number but very vocal you know, number of trans activists who are just in capable of being able to laugh at themselves there is something funny about all the ways in which we live and nothing should be sacred in fact the more you try and make it sacred the funnier it gets to poke poke fun Mm. at it and you know he I I think thankfully there's lots of people who cave under this but one of the reasons why Dave Chappelle stands out is because he refuses to cave and that's why people love him that's why his show is popular on Netflix because he's saying what we're all thinking which is that I should be allowed to make a joke about this this is not you know um, the heresy, mm. what's going on here? And so I think, you know, even though I was slightly disappointed in the lack of jokes, of the most recent one, it's essential watching for everyone because it gives it a, a rare glimpse of bravery in a debate around, you know, gender ideology that is so lacking of courage at the moment.
1: Yeah. No, and also, it's just, it comes from a particular sort of strain of comedy, which puts a lot of, Um, emphasis on kind of like laughing and laughing at difference Mm. as a and as a byproduct that kind of brings people together it's just the kind of absurdities of everyone's lives you know whether you're talking about stereotypes this that and the third all of that is just being really kind of shut down and also just a kind of sense in which you can just laugh at things because that's the problem with the sort of woke assault on culture at the moment is the fact that what it basically comes down to is that anything in art and culture particularly anything popular must say the correct thing Mm. Uh, you can't toy around with things mm. you can't piss around with things you must deliver the message in one way shape or form and that you know artistic freedom can't survive that and I think the great thing about Dave Chappelle how long this will go on for I don't know is because he's so famous and because he's so brilliant and because he's kind of uncancellable and because he has this attitude which is that he almost he's always said it quite explicitly in previous specials I can't help but make these jokes precisely because people have told me that I cannot mm. make them that he just very naturally bust through all this stuff but given the kind of response from netflix given the sort of climb down you know how uncancellable can he be or at least someone like him could be in the future it definitely doesn't doesn't bode well for any of that thank you for listening to the
0: spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on youtube or go via the spiked website which is spiked-online.com see you next time